0: If you've been at College Park Church for uh, for very long, you'll you'll come to learn that I have about four things that I say over and over and over. Every message eventually kind of lands at the same point, and one of the things that I say over and over is this particular statement: to keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. I don't know how many times I put that in sermons or how many times I've had to repeat that because those eight words have become a bit of a a mantra for me as I think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think you, you boil Christianity down to those critical words, which basically mean that God calls us to trust him. And then the beautiful thing is is that in trusting him, he helps to sustain us while we're trusting him. So following Jesus means I trust Jesus, but I also know that Jesus is gonna help me and trusting him. That's important when you've lost a loved one. It's important when you're battling some kind of illness. It's important when you're praying over a prodigal son or daughter. And this morning I want to take that idea, and I want to show you how First Peter chapter two, particularly in verse 23, helps us to understand where that thought comes from, and specifically how it relates to the unique suffering of exiles. This particular um, picture was one of uh, the things one of our elders put up in their living room as uh, they were experiencing a season of difficulty. They showed it to me a week after their daughter was prematurely born. This becomes an anchor for your soul when you're walking through any season of life, no matter what kind of difficulty it is. And this morning what we're going to see is the way in which that particular idea in First Peter chapter 2 relates to the unique difficulties and the unique trials of being in exile. We're not talking about losing a loved one. We're not talking about walking through cancer. We're not talking about the, the, the difficulties of um, some sort of, of emotional thing that you're wrestling with, although all of that would apply and be related to the idea of to keep trusting the one that keeps us trusting. Instead, this particular text applies to situations when you name the name of Christ, or when you are trying to follow him, and you experience pushback. Whether it's direct, like someone says something, like in your face, or it's just that awkward moment that you realize, I'm not like the rest of these people. I have in my mind high school students, who sit at lunch tables, and someone tells a dirty joke. And at that moment, you got to decide: am I going to laugh, or I'm going to say, you know, I, I just I'm not good with that. Or someone says, are you a Christian? And in that moment, you got to decide to say, yes, I am. I have in my mind men and women who are in college, and in the midst of your fraternity or your sorority, you're trying to figure out a way how to navigate your way through that labyrinth of morality and immorality and philosophical ideas and relationships. And you know that if you take a stand for Christ, there's going to be consequences. I have in my mind people who are in a workplace and you're in an environment that's not, not all that sympathetic to Christian beliefs. And it sort of seems like everybody else has this particular viewpoint, and then you're here all by yourself, and then every once in a while, it just feels really clear and really distinct that you're different, you think differently than the rest. I have in my mind parents who at Christmas or at holidays as your unconverted children come, the difference between how you think and how they think is just so radically different. And the question is, no matter what age of life you're in or what the scenario is, where do you go with that kind of pain? What do you think about and how do you process moments when you're called to be a Christian exile and it's just really clear? Or when you're at the edge of that conversation and you know if I go here, I don't know what's gonna happen. What is the thing that causes you to sort of cross that line and to be able to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. Yeah, I, I, I live my life by a, a book called the Bible, and I believe this to be God's word. In 1 Peter chapter two, we're gonna see two particular principles that relate to how to suffer well. And those two principles are, you suffer well by trusting God continually, and secondly, by knowing Jesus personally. What I want to do is to show you how this text helps those of you who are in the middle right now of moments when you're feeling like an exile, how do you go to work tomorrow? How do you deal with neighbors who look at you strangely because you came here today, how do you as a high school student make your way through your public school or even your Christian school? What if you even have Christians, maybe even part of this church, in a, maybe in a youth group setting or in your own small group or people who just, they act in an ungodly way. What do you do when that sort of becomes hostile? Well, Peter would say you trust God continually and you've got to know Jesus personally. So let me unpack this for you. First, the text says that we are to trust God continually. Look at verses 21 to 23. The text says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. And then here's the main thought for this text. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So this pericope begins with the connection to the previous verse. It says in verse 21, for to this you have been called. What's he talking about? To this. Well, we saw from last week, that this that he's referring to is in verse 20 when it says, if when you do good, this is the second half of verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So last week I, I made the point that if you suffer because you do sloppy work, if you suffer because you get your speeding and you get a speeding ticket, or if you just have a sort of a nasty personality and people kind of push you away, that's on you. What Peter has in mind is people who are doing what is good, they're trying to follow Jesus and as a result, they're experiencing negative consequences or negative effects. I had to laugh last week on Twitter, a particular article appeared. There's this Christian satire site called the Babylon Bee. Many of you heard of it? Somebody sent this to me, wanted just to be sure that I saw this. The title of the article was this, Man Unsure If He's Persecuted Because He's a Christian or Because He's a Massive Jerk. (laughs) Here's what the article said. After getting in yet another argument on Facebook Monday, local believer Hank Richard found himself blocked by several of his friends and family members. But the 32-year-old Christian was still unable to figure out if this new wave of persecution was because of his firm faith in Jesus or because of the fact that he's a total jerkwad, sources confirmed. This isn't the first time the totally obnoxious follower of Jesus has found himself in the situation. According to Richard, he's constantly suffering persecution and exclusion in the workplace, among his family members, and even at church. And he's never entirely certain if if it's his reprehensible personality or his love for Jesus that's the cause. Quote, I'm always getting asked to leave restaurants and grocery stores for loudly arguing with people. I guess it's just my cross to bear in a culture that's diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus, he said. Man unsure if he's persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a massive jerk. This text does not apply to massive jerks. This text applies to people who are trying to figure out how do I respond in, in grace? How do I model Christ-likeness when it feels as though I'm being singled out? Now this particular kind of suffering that we're talking about relates to when we're trying to do what's right, and the text goes even further and says, for to this you have been called, called. The word is used in First Peter 1 and verse 15 and in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 to describe the essence of the Christian life. Do you know what that means? That means that when Peter says, to this you have been called, he means that by doing good, when you experience the difficulties that come with doing good, that that is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That that's part of our calling It means that suffering for righteousness is part of what it means to be a Christian exile. By the way, this is not the only place where the Bible talks like this. Jesus put it this way in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then Paul said this in 1 Timothy, or rather 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now listen, here's part of the problem. The problem is that in the beautiful culture of the United States in which we live, it was for so long easier than most places in the world to both have the American dream and to be a follower of Jesus. In some respect, those two things were woven together. And when that began to be fractured and that sort of began to be separated from one another, that's when talking about an exile suddenly became really important and really urgent, but I would suggest to you that that separation has been that way for most Christians throughout the history of the church. The challenge is that many evangelical Christians came to faith in Christ, not counting the cost, but rather, in hearing the good news that Jesus died for your sins, you could be forgiven of all of your sins, and when you die, you go to heaven, and they heard that and said, well, awesome. But what they didn't understand is that Following Jesus also comes with a cost. It means that now I have given my heart to another king and that king has an obedience that is required of me, that I am to joyfully follow him as my Lord and my Savior. And then that also means that it sets me at times in an awkward and difficult position. So can I just push this There are some of you who have never really experienced any level of pushback. You've never really had an awkward moment when your faith has made the situation uncomfortable and part of the reason is because you're so assimilated into culture, nobody really knows you're a follower of Jesus. You're in the lunchroom and people say what they say and you just are quiet. You kinda just get along with everybody else there's really no distinction between you and, 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 and the people around you. And so, like this text seems rather foreign. And if that's the case, and I'm not suggesting you go out and start hunting for suffering. Like you go out looking for it. But what I am suggesting is if you don't know anything about the tension of what it means to cross the line when you share the gospel, if you don't know what it's like to share a biblical perspective on an issue and have someone look at you and go, really, you believe that? If you don't know what it's like to take a stand for righteousness and have people push back on that, then it may be you need to take a closer look as to what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Because suffering, according to my understanding of the Bible, is part of what it means to be a follower of his. The text moves on. It says, To this you have been called, And then it says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. So then it moves on and it talks about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to follow his example. So Jesus comes into the world not just to provide the means of atonement, But he also comes into the world in order to provide an example of how his followers are to live. So that means that if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian yet, I want you to listen really carefully to the things I'm going to talk about. Because what Peter is saying here and what I'm suggesting in this text is simply that Christ comes in order to pay for our sins. And those who put their trust in him are forgiven but in the way in which Jesus does that, he also provides a model for Christians to live. And I'm sure, if you're, a follow, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know lots of bad Christians. We know lots, I know lots of bad Christians. I am a bad Christian. I mean, look around you. There's lots of bad Christians in this room. I see one, I see one. No, I'm just kidding. But we're, all, we're not all that we need to be. And yet, what happens is that Peter shows us that Jesus gives us an example of how we are to live. That word example in this text has a really powerful meaning. It's two Greek words that are put together. It's the Greek word hupo and the Greek word grammon. Grammon means to write and hupo means under. The idea is that there's something written underneath and then another piece of paper is put on top of it and then one traces the outline in order to learn what that thing underneath is, or to see it as an example. Think of it as a child learning their ABCs. They, they, they take a letter, they put a piece of pa- paper on top of it, that's somewhat clear, and they begin to trace the letter in order to learn how to make the strokes of that particular letter. In the same way, Peter is saying that Christ is our example in that way. That when we read the scriptures, when we see the way that Jesus responded, that he becomes this, this pattern of how we are to respond. So, how did Jesus respond to suffering? Well, verse 22 tells us He suffered unjustly and he suffered perfectly. He committed no sin, the text says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So, this is the first of about four or five times that Peter is going to quote directly or indirectly from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is an Old Testament signature text on the suffering of the Messiah. Peter draws from this in order to connect the sufferings of Jesus to this historical pattern of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And he's identifying here that Jesus' suffering not only fits this pattern, but that Jesus suffered more unjustly, he suffered more unrighteously than anyone possibly could. So Jesus is held up as the ultimate example when it says he committed no sin. You couldn't say that about yourself. couldn't say that about me. I mean, there's some suffering that I deserve, but Jesus never deserved any of it. And it says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Everything he always said never needed to be nuanced in terms of is it truthful or is it not truthful. In this way, Jesus becomes the ultimate pattern. Suffering exiles, therefore, need to consider Jesus. So if you're here today, and you're in the middle of one of these scenarios where God has put you in a spot where it's awkward being a follower of Jesus, could be with somebody in your own family, could be with someone at work, it could be with a neighbor, you need to look at the Bible and see the example of Jesus and ask yourself, so What did he do? Or this week, when that situation comes, you need to ask yourself, what would Jesus do right now? What would Jesus do right now? If he was here right now, what would he say? What would he do? What would be the look on his face? What would be his countenance? That when you, you understand the example of Christ, it's meant not just to be a theoretical example, but meant to be a personal one. Secondly, Jesus does not retaliate. It says, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Retaliation is the normal, natural tendency of us human beings, is it not? Someone says something to you, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Words begin to form in your mind. Like you gotta grit your teeth to hold them back. And then if you're like me, like you don't always have the words like right away, but you got them like an hour later, and you're like, ooh, that's a good one. I wish I would remember that back then, right? And you're so glad you didn't say it, but frustrated you didn't have it at that moment, right? Retaliation is somebody treats you unfairly. They say something inaccurate. How quick we are to defend ourselves and come back at them. And... But there's even more. Jesus not only didn't retaliate, but he didn't threaten when he was poorly treated. He didn't try and intimidate people by virtue of his power. I mean, think think what Jesus could have said. Soldier or high priest smacks him across the face. Imagine Jesus saying, you hit me now, I'm coming back to life. I'm going to raise from the dead, I'm coming to your house, pal. Can you imagine it's in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It doesn't sound like Jesus. I'm coming for you. Keep one eye open. Three days from now, you and me, we're going to go. I mean, he, he, But wouldn't you do that? Don't you know who I am? You're hitting me. I could kill you in this instant. He does none of that. And it's not just that he does that, but he does it as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, how tempting it is to, to want to fire back. And one of the things, if you're going to be involved in ministry, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a small group leader, if you're going to be a pastor, you've got you to know that you're just going to take body blows. And you've got to respond righteously. And it's hard. Remember at my previous church, this would never, never happen here, but at my previous church, somebody sent me an email, and they were ticked off about something. I'm sure it was really important. And, um, and they said, um, and we're, we're going to leave the church over this. And you know, everything within me, I just wanted to say, good, send. <laughs> or, well, if you leave the church, that'd be fine. Maybe I'll leave the church and tell people, it's because of you. Smiley face, Pastor Mark, Woo, there you go, send it out. <laughs> but no, 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 no. You see, we don't have the, we, we can't send that kind of email. You have to respond in Christ-likeness. doesn't mean that you're absolutely silent. doesn't mean you don't, sometimes you don't say anything. Sometimes it means that you respond graciously when people aren't gracious. So then the question goes like this. So, so, so they, they get to be mean, and I get to be gracious. They get to be rude, and I have to be kind. They get to assault me, and I still have to bless them. So what do I do with all the stuff that's inside my soul? Where do I go with the desire for vengeance? And where do I go with my anger? And Where do I go with all these words that are in my soul? Where do I go with this? Well, look what Jesus did. How did he do this? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, one of the reasons I love this text is because I've come back to this text over and over and over as a pastor over the last 20, 25 years in dealing with sometimes unconverted people in the church, or dealing with difficult circumstances and situations, you can't chase down all the rumors. You can't chase down what people said about you. So what do you do? You can't chase down misunderstandings. You can't chase down the people at work who are saying things about you. You can't even sometimes make them stop. It just makes it worse. You can't have your friends at school somehow turn and and, and suddenly think that you're popular because you're standing for Christ. Usually that doesn't happen. So where where do you go with what you are feeling and dealing with? The answer is to entrust it to the one who judges justly. You know what that word entrust means? It's awesome. It means that you you hand it over. It means that you give it to somebody else. By the way, it's the same word that's used for Jesus' betrayal in Mark 14. It's the same word that Paul uses for handing someone over to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5. It means that you lay it at the feet of your Savior. And the, the tense of this word means you do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. It means you walk out of the lunchroom, people made fun of you, And you say somewhere in your soul, I did that for you, Christ, and I'm going to lay down my vengeance at your feet. I'm going to lay this down. Your son or daughter drive away from the last holiday, and there's awkward tension because where they are at and where you're at. And you just say, Lord, I'm laying this at your feet. I'm laying this at your feet. You hear rumors that someone's saying something about you. You lay it at his feet. You lay it at his feet. You lay it at his feet. Some of you, the whole reason you're here this morning is simply to hear that whatever's happened in your life this week or whatever they've said about you, you need to take that thing and lay it at Jesus' feet today. In fact, at the end of our service, we're gonna have our elders available to pray with you. Some of you are in the middle of that kind of scenario right now, and it's hard to be kind. when People are being rude. It's hard to be Christ-like when they're pressing in on you, or you may be in a situation at work where it it is really difficult to know how to navigate through the labyrinth of of post-modernity that you live in, and how do I do this as a follower of Jesus, and we wanna be able to help you and to cheer you on in the midst of that and to keep setting before you the joy that was set before Christ. I thought this week, so how does, how does this sound when it's coming out of our mouths in prayer? Here's how it sounds for me. Father, I'm hurting so badly right now, I'm mad and everything within me wants to respond. You know the words running through my head right now and you know the plots that are running through the dark parts of my heart. However, you know the whole story. You see everyone's hearts, including mine, and I believe that one day you're gonna make everything right. I'm not God, you are. So I'm gonna lay this down, I'm gonna lay down what they said, I'm gonna lay it at your feet. I'm gonna let you take care of my name and reputation. Since I'm free in Jesus, what ultimately matters to me is what you think of me. So I'm giving you all of this mess, what they said, what they did, and all of what I wanna do right now, It's yours. I'm gonna pray for those who've hurt me, I'm gonna love them anyways, and I'm trusting that trusting you is better than trusting in my revenge. That's the pivot. I'm trusting that trusting you is a better, wiser action than trusting in revenge. You see, revenge, or those words, they offer the promise of what you would get if you could say that or do that and how that would feel and you'd be able to vindicate yourself and they'd get what's coming to them and there's all sorts of promises over there and then there's the promises over here of trusting the one who judges justly. And being a follower of Jesus in a Christian exile is to say, God, I'm not going to bank my life on that. Instead, I'm going to trust that you are the one who can judge justly. There's some of you who this morning, you need to transfer accounts from revenge and reviling accounts and instead transfer it over and say, God, this belongs to you. Christian suffering is a part of your calling being treated unfairly because of Christ is a badge of honor, not something to be shunned. And how do you do that? You do that by trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Here's the second thing. Not only by trusting continually, but by knowing Jesus personally. Personally. The second sustaining grace in the midst of suffering is to know not only that you can trust the one who keeps you trusting, but that Jesus personally enters into your suffering. He entered it for you, and he enters it with you even now. That means that when you suffer, Jesus shows up in beautiful ways. Now, what does Peter tell us here? He says this, He himself, this is verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When he says he himself, it means that Jesus personally bore our sins. So what Peter's going to do is to personalize the suffering by reminding us that Jesus personally went the distance for our sins. Listen, when you're in the middle of a difficult moment and you're receiving the effects of following Jesus, you need to be reminded that it is absolutely worth it. To be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what it means that you live for Christ's affections, to be reminded of what it means that he bore your sins in his body, and as well it says that we might live to righteousness the the idea is that jesus came in order to not only set you free from sin but also to set before you a better way to live and so part of what we do even here on sunday is to remind one another about truths like these for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us that the difficulties that you're going through are not worth this glory that you're going to see. So that when you come up to the edge of that moment, and you realize, I got to say something, I got to take a stand, I got to do what's right, I got to say, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. And you're like the only person in the room who's doing that. At that moment, there's a glory battle that's on the line about whether or not you just rather people think well of you, or whether or not you're going to cherish the glory that is yet to be revealed to you. See one of the ways that corporate worship helps us in that is that as we gather you hear me talking you you sing songs together we are reinforcing that yes indeed these things are true these things are lovely you need the regular gathering of God's people in order to remind your own heart that what's outside of christianity is not as attractive and lovely as what's inside particular theologian John-Jacques Van Alman says this, every time the church assembles to worship, to proclaim the death of Christ, it proclaims also the end of the world and the failure of the world. It contradicts the world's claim to provide men with a valid justification for their existence. It renounces the world. It affirms that it is only on the other side of death to this world that life can assume its meaning On the other side of death to this world, that is, in resurrection with Christ. So as you read your Bible, as you you memorize Scripture, as you gather in small groups, as you sing together on Sunday, these things all serve to make war on the things that would tell you it's not worth it to name the name of Christ. Keep your mouth shut and just go along with everybody else. Don't mention his name. And when we gather, we rehearse the gospel and we leave here reminded no, he's worth it. What I believe is true and what I believe is real. As Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. The challenge is, is that leaks. And yet we are called. To live in light of the beauty of who and what Christ is. The text says that he might die, that we rather might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, he only saved you from your sins, both past, present, and future, but he saved you so that you could live righteously right now. So when you're in that moment and you realize, look, I'm gonna go for, I'm gonna be the only person, I'm gonna be that guy who's following Jesus, I'm gonna identify, look, I don't think that's funny, I don't don't think that's appropriate, that's offensive. I I respectfully ask that that not happen. You go there, in that moment you need to realize what pushes you over the line is the understanding that Jesus came and died for that very moment. And if, perchance, you're identified as somebody who's a follower of Jesus and there is negative implications or pushback because of that, Peter tells us this is what we've been called to. I was having a conversation with a pastor some time ago about some of the painful and unfair things that were happening in his church. He began to hear rumors confirmed rumors that were going around, things that were being said. It was painful, it was was hard. And after hearing about it, and hearing what was happening in his church, I told him how sorry I was. And then I reminded him that this kind of moment with all of its pain and all of its unfairness is exactly why God called him to be a pastor. I told him, brother, all of your training all of your experiences, all of the things that you've dreamed about in terms of what you wanted to do for the sake of the church, this is it. Jesus has bid you to come and die. You are living the dream. So die, die for your people. Don't chase down every rumor. Do what Jesus did. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten here's the beautiful paradox of suffering it reminds you how valuable and important jesus really is that's the crazy thing you you name the name of christ and you experience consequences because of it it only affirms that yes he is truly worth it and then the text ends for you were straying like sheep having now returned to the shepherd but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Again, Peter pulls from Isaiah 53 and he ends with these two important terms. That Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of their soul. It sounds a lot like Psalm 23 that he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It means that since Jesus is our shepherd, we can follow him. And since he is our overseer, he will help and guard us. It's the same kind of promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 10. He said this, and you will be dragged before governors and kings and for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, the problem is some of you have never experienced that. You don't know what it's like to be across a Starbucks table and have somebody say something, and you look at them and you're like, No, I gotta, I gotta say something, and you kindly, graciously say something, and as it comes out of your mouth, you're like, Whoa, that didn't come from me. You're like, doo, 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 doo. This is awesome, right? And you experience that, and you know, in that moment, you went the distance, and God showed up, and His Spirit helped you. And when it's scary, and you wonder, What's gonna happen to me? You have the promise of Jesus' ultimate protection. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 8. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know most of you know it's in your Bible. The question is do you know why that matters in the lunchroom? Do you know, do you know why that matters in your office? Do you know that, why that matters in your neighborhood? It matters so that when you are debating between the effects of what happens, if I go there with my faith and I really am identified as a Christian exile, there's gonna be implications of this. This verse provides the ground underneath to remind you nothing in this situation can ever separate you from God's love. In other words, you're free. You're free to be in exile and more importantly, you're actually free to suffer and not revile. To suffer and not threaten. So, when, not if, you find yourself where you are called to name the name of Jesus, to take a stand for the gospel, to do what's right, when everyone else is doing what's wrong, remember that you are doing this for Jesus. Not some cause, not some religion, not a belief system. You're doing this because of the one who he himself bore your sins on the tree. You're a Christian exile because Jesus has captivated your heart. And when that mindset gets embedded in your soul, you're able to let go of your desire for revenge. You're able to let go of your natural tendency to retaliate and the knee-jerk reaction of threatening. And instead, you can follow the pattern of your savior who instead of reviling, blessed, and instead of threatening, prayed for his abusers. You can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly while looking to Jesus with this hope that you will help me make it when this gets hard. By God's grace, you can suffer, suffer well, by trusting the one who keeps you trusting. In a moment, we're going to sing together. And Before we do, I want to pray for us in terms of what I hope will happen as God by his spirit closes our service today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for brothers and sisters today who are in the crucible of this very moment as identified in this text, a a moment where they're being asked to identify that they indeed are a person who follows Jesus. And there are all kinds of implications for that. And I pray that you give us grace, grace to be bold, grace to lay our... Our pain and our struggle at your feet and the ability to continue to follow after you, to platform the gospel, yes, even in the midst of hardship. Help us now, Lord. Help us to minister to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.